before we look into the Word. Father, we have sung this morning of your greatness. We have celebrated your amazing gifts. We have found hope knowing that you are a God who saves and rescues. Father, we come to you today as people who perhaps some of us are overcome by something in our lives. There may be those who are here today who are heavily burdened. And we pray, Father, that you might speak to our hearts. We pray that we might find hope in the gospel and in gospel ministry. We pray that we might find, for those of us who are prone to struggles that we're blind to even see, we pray that your Spirit would bring to light the things you want us to see and understand today, and that we might, therefore, Father, we have a fresh encounter with our wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, as we look into your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I am convinced more than ever that there is a tremendous amount of confusion about what it means to be a person who lives a life under the control and power and influence of the Holy Spirit. There are not a few people in this world who will make numerous claims about the fact that they are evidencing this control and leading of the Holy Spirit in their lives, and they do so by claiming that the evidence of that is quite quite strange, because these things are not taught in the Scriptures. For example, there are those who claim that they're under the Spirit's control and power because they are slain in the Spirit, collapsing uh, off their feet and leaning backwards, and claiming that somehow evidences the fact that They're under the Spirit's control, where that's nowhere to be found in the Scriptures. There are others who were part of a Toronto movement a number of years ago, in which large crowds of people would gather and claim that the power of the Holy Spirit would come upon them, and they would be uh, expressing uncontrollable laughter as an indication that that was indeed the power of the Holy Spirit, or barking sounds and other animal sounds that were coming from those who claim to be under the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit. That's not an exaggeration. That is real, really did happen. Others have claimed that they have and speak in ecstatic, unknown, quote-unquote, languages that are unintelligible syllables, claiming that this is proof of the Holy Spirit's full influence over their lives. My question I raise to us this morning as we look in this passage in the latter part of Galatians 5 and the early part of Galatians 6, what do the Scriptures say? People have all kinds of experiences. People make all sorts of claims. I say, what do the Scriptures claim and teach? And so I'd like us to turn in your Bible there to page 1388 in your pew Bible or find it there on your electronic device or your Bible in front of you. Galatians chapter 5. We've noticed in this text a contrast between living life according to our flesh, our sinful nature, which is contrasted with living life in harmony with and under the control of the Holy Spirit. And last week we looked at an interesting phrase found in verse 25. Galatians 5.25. We notice that it says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit, or follow the Spirit. Or better yet, keep in step 
with the Holy Spirit, which means that we're to march in step with Him. We're to keep in harmony with Him, follow His directives, submit to His leading. Well, this morning I want us to explore further several practical evidences that that is indeed what is happening in the life of someone who is following Christ. What does it mean to see the practical outworking of submitting to the Holy Spirit's leading? And I would argue that in this text of Scripture, based on the way the Scripture flows in this passage, and by the way, there's no break between chapter 5 and chapter 6 originally. All these breaks and uh, divisions were added for editorial purposes just to help people find their way through the text. That there are various internal and external indicators evident in the lives of those who apply the gospel to their hearts. That in applying the gospel to our hearts day by day, we're going to learn to this Holy Spirit's leading, and those things are going to become more evident because of the gospel's impact. And what are those practical uh, uh, evidences? Well, let's look at chapter 5, verse 26, and I'd like to read down to chapter 6, verse 5 of Galatians. Having already talked about, let us walk by the Spirit, he then says in verse 26, let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone, and will not in regard to another. For each one shall bear his own load. Now, I don't have time to get into all of the things that are found in this passage, so let me just assure you this is part one of at least another part two. And we're going to sort of skip over verse 1 of chapter 6. I just want you to know I'm I'm going to make some leaps over that because there's so much packed in that one verse. A whole sermon, we'll look at that in the future. But I want to start off with two overarching principles that we can take away from this text to help inform us regarding what it means to have the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us, the influence of the Holy Spirit to follow His leading. We see it in two ways. Number one, the gospel, when applied to our hearts, by the Holy Spirit, always impacts our view of ourselves. Our view of ourselves. It starts there. Paul says, let us not become boastful. Well, one of the things, again, the Holy Spirit is going to do as we apply the gospel to our hearts is He's going to address our thinking. The gospel impacts our hearts and our minds. He's going to transform not only our views of who Christ is, that He is God and man, that He is the sin bearer shown by His love to die for us on the cross and able to save us, but we're also going to change the way we view ourselves and even other people. I would say to you, and this is very important to understand, the evidence the Spirit of God has applying the gospel to our hearts is that He is going to attack And go after the tap root of the flesh, and that is pride. Pride. Having an elevated view of ourselves. 
So that's why verse 26 immediately follows the idea of leading, following the leading of the Spirit. What's he going to do? Well, be careful how you view yourself too highly. He calls us to turn away from our natural pattern of boasting about something that has little value. That's the next phrase. Let us not become boastful. That is, with empty glory. Don't be uh, priding yourself about something that really has of no or little value. Vain glory is another way of saying. One of the obvious ways to tell if you're keeping in step with the Holy Spirit is if the gospel is dismantling, letter A, dismantling your pride. An arrogant spirit and the fruit of the spirit are incompatible. I'm going to repeat that. That's sort of of like my point number one here. To have an arrogant spirit and the fruit of the spirit are incompatible. They do not go together. They are like oil and water. They do not combine. I would say this, the gospel, when it is working and operating in our hearts and lives, which is uh, helping us understand why we need a Savior and pointing us to Christ as our Savior, it is like a heat-seeking missile that is going to attack all forms of pride in our lives. Now, that shouldn't surprise us. And yet, sometimes we need to hear this again and again. It's interesting that Paul would bring up this issue about pride because it's against the backdrop, this book is written against the backdrop, of people who were rule keepers, people who we call legalists, and they prided themselves on their efforts to improve themselves, to be better than the person beside them because they were determined by their own efforts to improve their standing before God in keeping the law, and the Spirit of God applies to their hearts, this important principle about the gospel. It's not about you improving yourself by keeping rules. Because the problem is, is that if you're honest, we all, in the gospel, are led to to the point where we have to confess our unworthiness. We have to confess our own spiritual bankruptcy before God. That's where the gospel will take us. The gospel does not encourage us to be proud of ourselves and our performance and our abilities, and our insights, and our goodness. Because there's nothing to boast about. It is vain, empty boasting. How about an example? Luke chapter 18. If you can find your way there fairly simply, I would encourage you to look at this contrast between two different views of themselves. There's one person here who is portrayed as a religious person, But they are full of conceit, they are full of vain glory, they are boasting about themselves. He's a religious moralist. And he is contrasted with a repentant, dishonest businessman who is known to be quite corrupt. And the moralist, in Luke chapter 18, verse 11, he is viewing himself based on his comparison of himself with other people. And so he looks at this dishonest businessman who stands before him and he measures himself by this other man and he says, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. You can tell he's pointing now, thinking about this man standing there, who is a swindlers or unjust people, adulterers, even like this tax collector. You could just tell probably by the tone of his voice based on the words he's using here, He probably looks at this man with such disdain. 
He says, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Clearly finding a measure of boastfulness in his own performance of things that he thinks is far superior than what this man may be involved in. Now you contrast that with this amazing response of this tax collector who demonstrates a very sincere, earnest humility before God. And what does he say? Verse 13. Just one phrase. He says, God... Then he lifts his eyes to heaven. He's so ashamed. He's looking downward, beating his chest, which would mean a sense of earnestness and a sense of great sorrow that's breaking his heart. And he says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. There's no vain glory there. There's a man who's honestly acknowledging his brokenness before God. And the gospel silences all self-glorying. The gospel silences self-boasting and it replaces it with a boasting in Christ. A boasting in Christ alone and His saving grace shown to people who are unworthy of it. And so according to this passage, back now at the end of chapter 5 in Galatians, we're going to find that not only is there this danger of boasting, but there's a a problem with pride in two different directions. It oftentimes may... Uh, may evidence itself. On the one hand, in these two common expressions of conceit or pride, on the one hand, pride can produce thoughts of feelings of superiority. That is, a person can have a rather high view of themselves and in looking at at other people around them, they can then begin to have a sense of, well, I know that I'm better than you are and I'm going to challenge you by provoking you in various areas to show you you can't do what I do or you're unable to keep up with me. And the gospel will confront us. That's what he says in verse 26, challenging one another. The gospel confronts us if we tend to look down on other people, those of us who love to compete with other people. We love to measure ourselves with how well am I getting along versus this person, versus that person. And just evidencing the fact that in our hearts we keep measuring ourselves by competing, making sure that we're one step ahead of them, proving that we have greater abilities or proving that we have a greater position over them. I would dare say that one of the areas this may evidence itself is the person who knows their theology or they know tremendous amounts of biblical facts or biblical information, and they take that information and they just sort of keep priding themselves on their knowledge of the Bible. Now, we want people to know the Bible. We want people to know good, sound doctrine. That's all good. But if this person is comparing themselves and constantly aware of the fact that they know more than other people around them, and they have a a constant area of provoking people by their pushing of this doctrine or pushing these things at these people, really don't care about them. They just want people to know how much they know. That's a struggle with pride. And the gospel insists that full acceptance before God is only to be found through Christ who provided to us on the basis of grace, through His life, through His death, through His resurrection, that we find acceptance before God all because of Christ, not because we're better or more capable or perform better than others. And the gospel frees us from trying to gain our worth from other people. To feel like we have to compete against them and and be one step ahead of them all the time and compare ourselves to them all the time. 
The gospel frees us from that. Praise God. But you say, well, I don't struggle with that. That's not not my struggle. I'm on the other side of the equation. The gospel, I would argue, and Paul also includes, there's the other extreme of those who envy other people. You say, well, how does that show itself pride? Well, if we see ourselves as inferior to the people around us, and we tend to therefore be filled with envy toward others around us, and we, we're viewing them as superior to us. Oh, I just wish I had that. And since I don't, oh, I just, oh, uh, that, oh, it's not fair. Why do they get to do? So we're always looking at them, comparing ourselves to how we don't measure up. And it could be something like, look at their children, how they're so well behaved. Or others may say, oh, look at, look at where they go on vacation. We're left here, you know. We don't seem to ever get off the island. Or people who compare themselves and say, well, my clothes don't measure up to the stylish clothes they wear. Therefore, I know and I'm feeling inferior because I really wish I could look like that. I wish I could be stylish like that person. Or I wish I could be calm and cool and collected like that person. And so we're constantly seeing ourselves as inferior, longing to be like another person and measuring ourselves by them. And therefore, we find ourselves saying, oh, I wish I was just better off financially like that person over there. And we keep slipping into an elevated view of ourselves that says my worth, my dignity, my identity is wrapped up in what I have or what other people think of me. And that can be a form of conceit, filling my heart, therefore, with envy of what other people have that I don't have. May I remind you, the gospel says to us, Christ's righteous robes are ours to wear. We don't need the latest fashion and stylish clothes to find our significance and our identity and our sense of acceptance It's found in Christ who clothed us in our shameful, ugly, worn out, torn, shattered rags of our own righteousness. It's Christ who gave us his robes of righteousness to wear. He is our priceless treasure. That is the gospel. So I would like to just remind us again of the gospel that gives us a helpful corrective. So a proper view of ourselves. Here's a couple of verses you might want to jot them down. Romans 12.3 Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. What's that implying? It implies that that tends to be the way we operate. We tend to sort of have an elevated view of ourselves if we're not careful. He says, instead, think with sound judgment. That is, with sober and with accurate kind of assessment. What does that mean? That means keep embracing the gospel that says, I'm a desperate sinner that needs a Savior every day. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 3, Paul says, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. I'm not all that. And anytime I think I'm all that, I've lost sight of the gospel. And so this is where the subtlety of Our view of ourselves is something we hope the gospel, by the power of the Spirit, as He applies the gospel to our hearts, we begin to see, I become aware of the fact that I am susceptible to pride. 
I'm aware that there's a, an elevated view of myself that I may be suffering from. It may indicate that I feel like I'm inferior and I'm looking at others as superior to me. Or it could be that I feel superior to others and I'm looking down there with some measure of, of inferiority around me. It doesn't make it. It goes either way. But all of us need to measure ourselves by gospel standards. Our standing, our worth, our identity is wrapped up in our sinless Savior who loved us, who gave himself for us. And instead of challenging and envying others around us, the gospel calls us to what? Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing from selfishness. Or what? Empty conceit, vainglory. Boasting about something that's not really true. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. You say, well, that sounds simple and easy. Let me tell you something. It's subtle and it's hard to pin down. And that's why we constantly have to be in the Word and say, Holy Spirit, use your Word to help me see things I can't easily see about my heart attitude and my view of other people. A second overall principle here in this text, again, I'm not gleaning everything from the text yet because there's so much packed in here, but I'd like to just get into the second issue here that the gospel, when it's applied by the Holy Spirit to our hearts, always impacts our view of other believers. Other believers. When it comes to this idea of spirituality, there have been so many convoluted concepts in people's minds of what that means. But you notice in chapter 6, verse 1, you who are spiritual. Who is a spiritual person? Well, years ago, there was a guy named Simeon the Stylite. Simeon the Stylite. And he lived about uh, 423, year of our Lord. He was one of what they call the Desert Fathers. He lived on the edge of the Syrian desert. And he concluded that the most effective and appropriate way to express his desire to be free from worldly distractions, his most earnest attempt to live a life of spirituality, was a life of solitude. And so he purposed in his heart to prepare a pillar of some kind that was elevated off the ground with a little perch on top of it, in which he camped on that little perch, not for six weeks, not for six months, six years. He sat on top of this pillar in the desert by himself. People would come and visit him, but he was on his own on that little stand. Now I ask you, if I had gone out and saw this guy, I would have said, are you crazy? What's the point? Living in solitude has nothing to do with spirituality. How can I make such a bold statement? What does the text say? You who are spiritual are going to be what? Involved with other believers. You do not live off on your own in a desert and say that's the best way to live a life of spirituality under the control of the Holy Spirit. Not at all. You cannot get that out of this text. The text of Scripture says if you're living a life that's under being led by the Holy Spirit, it's going to have to affect your own heart toward yourself and your view of yourself. But it also affects how you view other believers and the fact that you're going to see yourself as participating in their lives. 
If you'll notice that spirituality in verse 1 is most evident and best made in terms of how it's lived out in the context of community. And that community, my friends, is the local church. And the fruit of the Spirit is lived out in the context of relationships. It is a lot easier on some level to say, I'm just going to sort of live on my own. It's a lot less complicated. But I assure you, my friends, the Holy Spirit is not leading you to live off by yourself somewhere in the desert. The Holy Spirit applies the gospel to our hearts. And one of the outward effects of that application of the gospel to our hearts is a willingness to get involved in bearing the burdens of other believers who are around us. And one of the heaviest burdens that some people face is found there in verse chapter 6, verse 1, is the burden of their own sin in which they've gotten trapped in it. They've gotten stuck. They've gotten into a situation they don't know how to get out of it. We're going to talk about that all next Sunday. That's a whole sermon just on that issue alone. But I just want to back up and notice that the text deals with a broader principle of the idea of bearing each other's burdens. Verse 2 is the general principle with a specific application about a person who may have fallen into sin. But the general principle is true. Bearing burdens is part of what it means to be led by the Spirit. To be under the control of the Holy Spirit. Now, burden bearing is not glamorous ministry. (laughs) Believe me, it's not. It is messy. It's inconvenient. It's costly. And it's time-consuming. That's sort of what parenting is, by the way, isn't it? It's inconvenient. (laughs) It's costly. It's time-consuming. It's messy. Because you are getting involved in the, in the issues of your children and the concerns that they have. But also in the terms of other believers as a family, members of the church family membership here, the gospel motivates us to really put into practice the biblical teaching. If you want to boil the Bible down and you want to understand the main duty we have between, before God and other believers, other people, including believers, Matthew 22 tells us what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, is that a command, the second one, is that a command that says we must love ourselves? No, he says love our neighbor as ourselves. He assumes you already love yourself. And guess what? We do. We love ourselves. We don't need more self-esteem teaching to encourage us to love ourselves more. We automatically love ourselves. The issue we have to face is we have to love our neighbor to the same degree and to the same level as we already love ourselves. And so in this text, we think about the gospel, and Paul is arguing here that as we receive the gracious love of Christ, a love that says in 1 John chapter 4, a love that was manifested to us in that God sent His own and only Son to be the satisfying offering and sacrifice for our sins, just uh, 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 satisfying the just demands that God had against our sin to condemn us and send us to hell like we deserve. Christ bears that for us. That's his expression of love on our behalf. And then he goes on to say this, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be that kind of satisfying sacrifice to God. Beloved, if God so loved us, 
we ought also to love one another in response to the same expression of that kind of love that God has shown us in the gospel. And so that is the reason why we get involved in the lives of other people who have huge burdens. It's because a love that has come to us from God is a love that now is to be expressed to other people in a motive to say, Lord, I love you. I can't get over how much you have loved me. And therefore, the expression of that love is to say, in the same way you've loved me, now I'm going to express that love to my neighbor like I've already expressed love to myself. Now, before I move into more specifics about the idea of burden bearing, I want to just take a moment and stop and deal with what I think for some of us who struggle with this whole idea of acknowledging burdens and who struggle with other forms of pride, that the Spirit of God wants to help us be aware there are false notions of spirituality again in which some people assume that because I claim to rely completely on God, and that, that is a good thing, we don't want to say that's a bad thing, but there are those who claim to rely completely on God, and then they'll say, and because I rely completely on God, I'm only going to talk to God about this problem. Just between me and God. And therefore, I'm going to assume that it's a sign of unbelief if I were to share my concern or my burden or struggle that I'm having, something that's weighing me down, something that I can't seem to handle myself too well, and I'm just going to keep it to myself because for me to tell anyone is to me, I really don't trust God, and God wants me to trust Him, and so therefore, it's just between me and God. And I just want to say here again, yes, it's true that the Bible does call us to rely completely and to trust exclusively Jesus to do what? To bear the full weight of our sin. To bear our guilt and our judgment. Yes, that is good, that is right. And faith in the promises of God, Psalm 55, 22, says what? Cast your burden upon the Lord. 1 Peter 5, 7, right? He will sustain us, according to Psalm 52. God will never allow the righteous to be shaken. Those are all good promises. Yes, we believe that, and that is true. But pride, I would argue, in our hearts can also prompt us to resist the notion of relying on other members of the body of Christ at times in our lives. Assisting us with these day-to-day problems and struggles and burdens. And some people wrongly assume that never telling your brother, never telling your sister that you're carrying this heavy burden, whatever it may be, would signify somehow that makes you more spiritual. I think I have a word for that. Hogwash. It's just not true. It's just not true. Look at the text. It is talking about spiritually, spiritual in, um, spirituality is this kind of dynamic going on in the body of Christ. Members of the body of Christ helping each other with their burdens. That's part of what it means to be spiritual and led by the Spirit of God. Now, when it comes to sharing your burden with another believer, I understand sometimes we've done that at times and we've been sorely hurt and disappointed by it. I understand that. I understand that personally. I understand that uh, in terms of hearing what other people have said about their, their situations. But I would just say, just because it was difficult one time doesn't mean you give up on it. That it's appropriate to share a burden with another believer, with your growth group. It's not a sign of weak faith. It's an indicator that the gospel of grace is at work in your heart and life. 
And it's reminding that you're a part of a family. You're a part of a, a, a people that God has knit together who are, who are committed to the gospel with each other. And therefore, you're humbling yourself, admitting your struggles, admitting your weaknesses, admitting that you need grace from God that comes through his people. So we're not to try to keep all of our troubles to ourselves. And some brothers and sisters in our church family, now hear me on this, you say, I feel like God is so far away from me. You ever people talk about that? God seems so far away from me. I feel like he doesn't really come in. He's not, he's nowhere to help me when I'm, when I'm, guess what? God's hands, God's feet, God's ears, and God's mouth sometimes are found within the members of the body of Christ. As they minister to each other, we sometimes see the love of God. We see the compassion of Christ. We hear, uh, they, they are listening to our burdens and concerns, and therefore we are having someone who knows and cares about us. They're imitating to us, helping us see a little glimpse of how great our God is who is the head of the body. So God bears our burdens, and he does so through the members of his body as we bear each other's burdens and fulfill the law. That's really what it's all about. Fulfilling the law means I'll show you I love you and bear your burden. Now from this text, I also understand verse 2. In terms of my view of other people, I understand that at times all of us, all of us, are called by God to bear heavy burdens. Now, I'm not referring to little small concerns, okay? I'm not talking about hangnails here. I'm not talking about, you know, you uh, had a bad hair day. I'm not talking about you have a pimple on your face. I mean, I'm not talking about those kind of problems. I know they seem serious to some of us. But I'm talking about, and the word he uses here, is a massive heavy burden that I am unable to handle on my own. As I said, verse 1 says that could be sin in your life. But I'm arguing it doesn't have to be limited to that. Some burdens come in many different forms. And I'm just scratching the surface here. There's a number of ways you can look at this. But some are obviously physical. Some of us live with illnesses. Some of us have cancer and other forms of ongoing physical problems, disability, some sort of pain due to an injury or you become injured somehow. It's a serious, heavy-duty problem. For some of us, it means we're incapacitated. We need people to help us, literally. Others of us are facing difficult situations, which could include who knows how many things. Loss of a job leading to then financial hardship and crisis. It could be ongoing uh, excruciatingly painful financial situation that's like poverty, just, just don't have much money and daily life is just struggle for me. It could be a, a, a crisis in which the death of a loved one has taken place. The ongoing pain of a divorce. A failure you've made somehow on your own that you've done something, you regret it, you can't change it, it happened. And you just keep on adding things in that blank. Who knows how many situations you're facing. And then spiritual problems. How about doubts? Doubts that just seem to melt away all the sense of confidence you had at one time and being able to really claim God's promise and the doubt is just like a fog all around your head and your heart. Or other, again, compulsive sin pattern like verse 1, which some sin is just 
going on and on in your life. It just never seems to go away. And you know it's something you can't, you wish you would be able to get out of it. You don't know how to get out of it. Perhaps it's debilitating anxiety. There's something that's down the road, something around the corner, and, and the thought of that happening or this may have happened is just eating away at you, robbing you of all joy, of all uh, a blessing, and therefore you're just caught up in anxiety. Who knows what all these things could be? Now, I would argue that some of these situations are so challenging and so complicated that it's clear, and please don't hear me being simplistic here, there's clearly situations that are so profoundly complicated. There's no way that any one of us or any 40 of us can help bear that burden sufficiently for that person to the point where that problem and issue is resolved. I'm aware of that. There are, there are very serious and profoundly difficult things that none of us can fully resolve for somebody else. But I would like to offer some practical things that I think can help on some important level. And here's the practical part of this. Please uh, take these things to heart and let's pray the Spirit of God will motivate us to live out our spirituality in these ways. For example, if someone is bearing a very heavy load and they're weighed down, one of the greatest ways you can minister to them and help bear that burden, that is join with them and get up under the weight of that, is to what? Pray for them. Pray for them. Not just once, but at least once. With them if you can. Pray in their hearing. Pray so they can understand that you are appealing to God on their behalf and you're lifting up that burden with them saying, Lord, will you help them bear this burden? Helping them to know that God is at work here. God is not far away. He is a God who hears prayers and you pray with them and for them and keep praying with them and for them. Now, there's many things you can do for those who are burdened, but I would argue this. There is none more important than prayer. Because ultimately what you're going to say is, God sovereignly, for some reason, they're in this burdensome situation for some reason, and you're saying, God, will you accomplish your purposes in the middle of this burden-bearing situation? God, you work here. This is your working here. I don't want to just sit there and give somebody a Band-Aid. I want you to be working. I want you to work in their heart. I want you to accomplish something that's significant in what you want to see happen here. How many of you had somebody pray with you and for you during a burden that was just a heavy, heavy burden? Praise God. I mean, you know what I'm talking about, right? If you've been there and you've done it and you've had some people pray for you, then all more, I pray, it motivates you to do the same for others around you. All right, another way I would just say, I'm just going to throw out several here. Another one is to just be with them. Be with them. You say, you mean, you mean I'm supposed to stop what I'm doing and you want me to actually spend time with them? Yeah, that's the idea. Just be present with them. The ministry of presence, and I'm not talking about things you get at Toys R Us. The ministry of presence, sitting beside someone, hanging out with them, communicate so loudly to that person, I care, I'm here with you, and you're not alone. I'm not saying you have to come with all the answers. Clearly, we don't have those. But I'm saying being there and just sitting there, sometimes it's sitting there and crying with them, is a huge ministry of bearing that burden. Not spouting off all these little trite sayings to try to somehow say something that sounds good. Don't go there. Just be there 
and do what's appropriate in that context. Sometimes it's best just to be quiet. The first period of time when Job's comforters came, wonderful. Then they opened their mouths. It's horrible. And there's like almost 30 chapters of all the baloney that they started spewing out at him, ruining any kind of comfort they had one time communicated. Another way to do it is to support people by practical ways of just helping them. A meal is a wonderful thing our church does. When there's situations, somebody can take a practical way of just bring a meal in. Everybody has to eat. And so meals are wonderful. Uh, A hug is appropriate in certain times. Uh, How about the idea of cleaning your house? I'll never forget, I'm not trying to embarrass anybody here, but I remember my wife had surgery years ago. She's incapacitated, can't do anything. I am trying to hold the fort down with the kids, whatever, church. And so I'm trying to be Mr. Superman. And knock, knock, knock on the door comes Retha Frisbee. I'm here to clean your house. I said, no, you're not. I wouldn't let her come in the door. You're not coming in to clean this house. Yes, I am. I'm coming to help you. Your wife's uh, not able to do this. I'll never forget it. It was a powerful way of saying, I'm here to help bear the load. And don't be arrogant like me and send people away thinking you can do it all. You should receive help when they're offering it. Do a load of laundry. Watch a child when a young mother is having a crisis. Having child care is a huge help in helping that young mother find hope and help in time of need. Now, also don't hear me saying, verse 5 of chapter 6, we understand that in offering help to someone and bearing the burden with them, it does not become our burden, and we are not to say they have no responsibility in the situation which they're in. The word here for verse 5 means load, means backpack day day load. You know, it's like a little... Um, a backpack that you carry for a small walk somewhere. doesn't mean a heavy burden. It means something you can carry as you have your own daily concerns and responsibilities. So everybody has their own daily responsibilities. We have to keep carrying those. It doesn't mean they all just go away. All right, let's bring this and land this big plane here. Okay, here we go. I'm trying to argue that true spirituality is lived out in the context of community. And following the leading of the Holy Spirit, the gospel applying to our hearts, it's lived out in the context of relationships. And the willingness to get involved in bearing burdens for each other, I think, is a part of says that says, I understand the gospel, I'm applying it to my life, and now I'm living it out. Let's not assume by pride that we are exempt from this idea of carrying somebody else's burdens and helping them on some level. Let's be sort of picturing in our minds... Imagine if you approach a hotel and you've pulled up, you've already paid the bill, checked in. They give you the little card keys and you're getting ready to check in your room. And if you're like us, we carry lots of stuff when we go travel, including a fan, which we turn on just to give us white noise because it's always noisy in hotels, it seems like. Anyway, so we carry tons of luggage and shoes and bags and my uh, my briefcase and all this stuff I bring with me. I'm workout clothes because I'm... Anyway, bring all that stuff with us. And imagine carrying in all that stuff. And I don't like to carry six loads of stuff. So I'm carrying three bags here and two here. And you're walking in like this. And there's a guy that works at the door there. He's a bellhop. That's what he does. One time we checked into the Ritz-Carlton. Our son and daughter-in-law gave us a free night there one time. And we and they say, uh, you know, open your trunks. So I'm opening the, the gas door, you know, on your... I'm like panicking, like I'm not so used to people opening and carrying my luggage and doing things for me. 
So finally get the thing open, and I mean, it's out of the car, it's shut. It's, they're already, they're ready, already in the, in the, in the uh, entrance of the hotel waiting for me. I'm trying to figure out what I do with the car. People are waiting on me. What a wonderful ministry when somebody will carry stuff for you, take it out of there, and help you what? Just for a period of time. The bellhop didn't become my best friend. He didn't spend life with me from there on out. He saw a moment of need. He helped me get that transition to where everything was taken care of. And here's a good quote by Philip Ryken. In your notes, every believer is called to be one of God's bellhops. One of God's bellhops, always ready to pick up someone else's luggage or baggage. You know, that's really what it's all about. When the gospel's working in our hearts and the Spirit of God is directing us and leading us, the gospel's going to point us to what? The gracious bearing of Christ coming and bearing our load of sin motivates me now to say, hey, I'll help you with that. I'm willing to extend myself out of gratitude for the incredible, huge weight that Jesus lifted for me. I'll help others. So that someday we'll have the opportunity not merely to look out for my own personal interests, but also for the interests of others as well. Philippians 2. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you first of all that you are a burden-bearing God. You reminded us today in this text in 1 John 4 that love means that you came out of the glories of heaven and Jesus came down into this sin world, sinful world, broken world. He got involved in our huge burden. He took upon Himself our guilt and our sin and our shame. Oh, Father, how we thank You for that amazing grace of our Savior. What love. Father, I pray that that kind of love will spill over and be applied to our hearts, that we will respond to your gracious dealings with us in Christ by receiving Christ as our own Lord and Savior, of confessing our need for a Savior, admitting that we are bankrupt spiritually, that we are in need of not improving ourselves, we're in need of someone transforming us, giving us a new heart. And so, Lord, I pray if there's someone here today that have never received the gift of eternal life, I pray today they would trust in Christ and Him alone and repent of their sins. Confess Him as Christ, as Lord of their life. Father, I pray for those of us who have known the love of Christ, have experienced that heavy lifting He's done for us. Lord, help us, we pray, to be motivated to be willing to bear each other's burdens and therefore fulfill what the Word of God instructs us to do, to love others as much as we do ourselves. And I pray, Lord, for someone here today who may be burdened, overwhelmed, weighed down. I pray, Lord, that they would be willing to humbly acknowledge that to somebody else in their church family so that we might help bear that burden with them. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.